Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. So hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's event at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is Carla Thorson, and I'm the Vice President for Programming here at the club. And I'm delighted to see all of you here tonight. And I'm also pleased to welcome Andrew Weiss, James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. A self-described Russia geek, if I'm allowed. Andrew has devoted his career to studying and understanding Russia and the politics of the former Soviet Union. And over the past 20 years, that focus has necessarily been a lot on Russian President Vladimir Putin. So Andrew has taken Putin's story in a unique and fascinating direction in this new book, The Accidental Tsar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Happened to be holding it. And Andrew, together with Brian Box Brown, offer a perspective in this graphic novel of Putin's political rise that reveals some of the truths behind the persona that Putin has spent his career cultivating. And it's really a clever peek into the myths that surround Putin, and it, it exposes who may really be lurking behind the facade. A quick reminder before we get started, for everybody here in the room, if you would take a moment to please silence your cell phones if you have one, or anything else that might beep or ring or play music, that would be great. Um, but we do actually want to hear from you, and so if you do have a question for Andrew during the program, we, we have some question cards, and you can please feel free to write them down, and we will get to as many questions as we can in the latter half of the program. And if you are watching online, please use the YouTube chat feature, and you can share your questions in the chat feature, and we will do our best to incorporate your questions as well. So with that, Andrew, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's so great to see you, Carla. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, I'm delighted to see you. I realized the last time I saw you was in 2014, and that was right after the, the seizure of Crimea. So and we thought things were bad. We thought things were bad. Um, predictable but bad, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. Um, these many years later, um, looking at this this new book that you've written, and I have to say, um, it's it was really fascinating to read. Um, and one thing I would one thing I would note is, you know, we're calling it a graphic novel, but it's not really a novel in that it's it's biographical, and it's it's based on factual information. So it's in the form of a graphic novel, but it's not fictional. So. I have to ask the question probably everyone asks you, which is which is Putin is presented very much in a cartoonish, almost character way. Why did you decide to tell his story this way? A couple of things immediately jumped to mind. Um, and again, thank you for hosting me and for everyone, especially I see a lot of uh, family and friends who are here. And it's really a special treat to be in San Francisco. Um, I have a great life. I work at a think tank. I worked in government. Um, it is a dynamic period to be studying Russia. But what has troubled me periodically is how insular the world of Russia experts can be and the fact that we often don't provide more than just kind of a quick response to whatever today's big thing is. And it's really hard. I mean, it's nice. I get to talk to reporters or I get to write policy papers. Um, and that's a very privileged, wonderful existence. But when you try to understand, well, why are we in the mess we're in? You do need to tell a bigger, longer story of who Putin is, of how the grievances he's got and insecurities uh, have accumulated over 20 plus years. And you have to tell a story of Russia over the thousand years of its history. And graphic novels seem like a way to do that that would be different. Like, I don't, you know, uh, I didn't have a model. This was something to try to do that there was no obvious antecedent for or other book that I was looking up to. 
Um, but it was also a way to, you know, reach people who might not, who are really interested in what's going on in the world and who are really interested in what's going on with Putin, but might not have time to read a 700 page academic book. So I was kind of wary, like if I write one of those, like, will it reach as many people? And then there's a cohort of younger people out there who probably don't remember the Cold War, didn't live through it. I mean, you obviously were a scholar of Soviet and Russian politics yourself, so you can see how much the world's changed. But there are a lot of younger people who probably didn't experience 9-11, but who really like this format. And I just thought I could do something that would hit many audience segments that I think are really engaged on these issues. But most importantly, Putin has been taken very literally mm-hmm. by people and portrayed as larger than life. And I thought, man, that really bothers me. Like, and I don't mean to give away lines in the book, but there's something very ordinary about Vladimir Putin. But he's, by virtue of his image and the impact he's had on the world, he just comes across as like 10 feet tall, and he's not. And we've sort of made him seem more formidable than he actually is. Well, so yes, I'm a bit of a Russia geek myself. So I've read some books about him. I've read some other books about about Russian. And and most notably, I read Masha Gessen's book, The Man Without a Face, which was very revelatory for me at the time. Um, But there's some stories about him in this book that you've written that I have not heard. Uh, Most notably about his mother and 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 what happened to his family during World War II and what happened to his older brother. And so I wonder if you would just tell us a bit about his childhood and how those events in particular really were, were formidable for him. Sure. So Vladimir Putin was born in the early 1950s. He's 70 years old. And there's been a view, because he served in the KGB, that surely his rise was foreordained. And he is the you know, the best of the best, and he was a cream of the Soviet system. And, like, it's just not the case. And Vladimir Putin comes from a working-class family. His dad was a Soviet uh, soldier who barely survived. His mom uh, was trapped in Leningrad during the uh, several-year Nazi siege of the city, siege of the city, in which more than a million people died of starvation and other uh, horrible injuries. And his older brother was an infant and was taken away from his mom because people were starving to death and put in an orphanage so he could be fed. He didn't survive the war, so Putin never met that brother. There was another brother who died in uh, infancy um, before that one. So Putin grows up in this working-class world, but it's a city that's been through the worst possible trauma of having, uh, like, all people of that generation... 27 million Soviet citizens died in World War II. So it is, it's a monumental accomplishment of the Soviet Union that they helped defeat Nazism. But it is now, to come back to the, the story of Vladimir Putin, it's one of these touch points that he uses to justify everything he's doing. And we see this in the war in Ukraine, that you know, there are Nazis there. And so there's a kind of you know, callback to World War II that permeates Putin's time in office. And if I have a colleague here from my, uh, uh, the, the group of scholars I work with, Carnegie Endowment, but it's become Russia's national religion in many ways to talk about World War II. And what is striking about someone like Putin, who's you know, from the wrong side of the tracks, who got where he got to professionally because he was a hard worker and very diligent, very disciplined, he got into the KGB. It was like getting into Yale Law School or something. I mean, it was a pretty improbable thing for someone with his background to get to. But then he didn't do very well in the KGB. And that's a big part of the story as well, as to say, um, my agent had a good joke when we were talking about titles for this book. And it was like, her idea was, it should have been called The Spy Who Came In From Middle Management. And, <laughs> and I think, you know, there's something about Vladimir Putin that is like, you know, that is middling and was always middling, and has now had an incredible run in which he's outperformed anyone's expectations, including his own. Well, isn't there an old, an old adage that mediocrity always rises to the top? Or um, so I'm curious um, about the sources for, for some of these family stories, and uh, how, do, how do we know that they're true? Or are there, are there ones that may be just part of the mythology that's grown up around him? Yeah, Putinology is a moving target. And there was a wonderful investigative piece on the eve of Putin's 70th birthday in October that looked at how the official story of who Vladimir Putin is and his life keeps changing. And so I 
stipulate up front, anyone reading this book, that it is very hard to know anything for sure and to say that that's the truth. And it's deliberately been embellished at different points in time to tell a different story at a, aimed at a different audience. So when Putin came in the public eye, the story was about he was a man of action and he had had this kind of you know, uh, pretty good KGB career, but the goal was to convince the Russian people that they had a normal leader after Boris Yeltsin, who was very erratic. More recently, the narratives are much more about, like, Vladimir Putin, child of a religious family, and, you know, in touch with spirituality, and, you know, kind of predestined to be in the pantheon of great Russian leaders. So, like, the storyline always changes. Um, but what I did for the sources of this book was try to go back as best I could and look at things that I thought looked credible and then would double track or triple track to best I could and find other corroborating material. Um, the problem is that Putin himself makes stuff up. And when he gives interviews, it's not reliable. And, you know, even like one of the weird stories in the book that he's talked about is how his father came back from the war and found his mom on a cart full of corpses being pulled out of uh, the neighborhood. And the dad supposedly confronted the cart driver and said, she's not dead yet. So it was literally like a scene out of Monty Python and pulled the mom <laughs> off the, pulled the mom off the cart. Um, and, you know, I think it's true, but, you know, with Vladimir Putin, you can't say for sure. Yeah, well, there's the the other one about him being going up to the KGB and knocking on the door, saying, "You know, how do I get a job?" And yeah. the guy says, "Go away, kid, <laughs> come back and you know go to college and come back later." And that one's in his first kind of like campaign biography, which was released in 2000, and it's a series of sketches of, you know, here's who Putin is trying to introduce him to the Russian people, and it's told from a variety of people's perspectives. And then you know some of these stories are not flattering, and back then it was okay to have a portrait of Vladimir Putin that didn't make him seem perfect. Nowadays, that's not the case. Everything about Vladimir Putin has to be heroic, has to be grandiose. But back then, it was like, here's this guy who is from a weird, you know, non-traditional, non-elite background, talking his way into the ranks of the KGB. And then, but yet still being kind of a, a kind of a degenerate kid who, you know, at, at a young age got in fights and ended up getting yeah. sent to Dresden in East Germany, partly because he wasn't measuring up. I mean, that story about him getting in the, in wasn't a bar fight, but. Yeah, no, that, I mean, if the folks haven't seen it, this is the very first scene in the book is Vladimir Putin, just to set the scene. Um, since high school had wanted to join the KGB and there was this, at the time, pop culture in the Soviet Union glorifying the Soviet KGB. And he's into these movies, he's into the pulp novels of the time, and goes to the KGB headquarters. He's in ninth grade, supposedly, to try to offer his services. But then he gets finally into the KGB, and he waits 10 years, and he's in these pretty nothing jobs. He works in the HR department. He chases dissidents around the city of Leningrad. These are not the marks of a high flyer. And then finally, after 10 years of doing that, he gets into the training program to go overseas. And he's a German language speaker, so he has some claim on overseas assignments. And while he's back for a weekend in St. Saint Pe Saint Petersburg, then Leningrad, he's on a subway car and someone's bugging him on the subway. And he gets into just a street brawl and breaks his arm. And the book opens with him talking to his best friend, saying, I think I've made a mistake here and there are going to be consequences. And in you know, a matter of weeks, he was basically removed from the training program after only one year. Most people would have served more time there. And he goes to this backwater part of East Germany. And at the time, that just was not where you would put a high-flying Soviet KGB officer. And he serves in this little villa with six fellow officers. And it's like the equivalent of being sent to Peoria. I mean, it's just not where, it's not where the, the, the hot shots were going. Yeah, so you were working in high, pretty high-level policy circles when Putin was first announced as Boris Yeltsin's successor, and he really did come out of left field. Um, but what made him a good contender to re to replace Yeltsin, and why did he get chosen? And how influential do you think they expected he would be at the time? At the end of the 1990s, Boris Yeltsin's popularity was 3%. And he was uh, incapacitated by alcohol abuse. He was extremely erratic. 
And there were a series of criminal investigations swirling around uh, high-level corruption in his family and inner circle. And the family around Yeltsin, including his daughter, who was his main political advisor, were wondering, how are we going to get out of this jam? And thinking of remedies. And the prosecutor general of Russia, their equivalent of the um, FBI director or the Justice Department, sort of all rolled up into one, was sharpening his knives and working with Yeltsin's political opponents. And at some point in a classic Dirty Tricks move, which is similar to the famous P-tape of Donald Trump, there's a video that goes on the nightly news of the prosecutor in bed with two women. And it's grainy, it's like low quality, and the Yeltsin family had Putin go out in front of the TV cameras as the head of the security service, the FSB, and say, that's the prosecutor. And Yeltsin was very pleased with uh, Putin's performance, that he'd been such a stand-up guy validating this dirty trick. And at that point, the Yeltsin family had been looking for a successor. And the funny part about the story is they were conducting these focus groups and asking Russians for the leadership qualities that they would most embrace. And the thing that the Russian people in these focus groups came back with when they were asked about historical figures or movie stars was, we want that George Clooney guy from these, this like miniseries about this deep cover under Soviet intelligence operative in World War II. And he looks sort of like dashing. He looks kind of like George Clooney or John Hamm from Mad Men. And the Yeltsin people were like, we got to find someone like that. We need an intelligence officer who's kind of dashing. And Putin is anything but those things. And they then basically cut a deal with Putin, which was, you know, if you protect us and you agree to keep everything intact, all these Byzantine political arrangements, you can be president. But the anticipated role here for Putin was like, you'll be the patsy. And over time, Putin's audacity, his will to power, and his desire to dominate Russia crowded out whatever understanding he had with the Yeltsin family. But those people were still around even as of a year or two ago with offices in the Kremlin, and they still play an important role in the kind of way Russia is ruled. There's not gone completely. He hasn't thrown them in jail or something. Um, but I think they were taken aback by how Putin didn't, you know, for about four years he lived up to the deal, but then at some point he was out for himself. So you may have answered this, but I, I will ask you um, to think about it again in maybe a different way. So when, when you met him, when you were a staffer in the Clinton White House, so what did you learn about him and what do you think motivates him? I think it's really hard to answer that question because he's a career intelligence officer and those people are always playing you and they're always kind of telling you what you want to hear and seeming interested and listening really carefully to what you have to say. So there's a, it's a very challenging personality type to ever feel like you know what's going on with them because there are ciphers. Um, but back then, Vladimir Putin was very green and his superficiality and the kind of blatant efforts to ingratiate himself made it even harder to deal with him because it was just so transparent that he was trying to be helpful or seem interested. And a lot of times when we dealt with him, it was also clear he didn't have any authority. And the things that we were working on at the White House at that time with him were sensitive national security issues having to do, for example, with Iran's nuclear weapons program. And there were worries that Russian scientists and uh, institutes were helping Iran with its nuclear weapons activities. And we were trying very hard to kind of work stuff out and get things done in the Russian system and turning to Putin to be the person to kind of orchestrate all of that and to restrict the flow of this sensitive technology. And it just, you know, at the time, he was not someone who was that empowered to get those things done. Um, the other thing that was clear was that he was a hothead. And there were times, and this is also in the book, where Putin lost his cool. And we were aware of that part of his personality and it was easier to deal with him because if you got him off balance and you made him kind of, you know, have smoke coming out of his ears, he wasn't as good an interlocutor in terms of doing his part of the job. So it was a source of leverage for us that he was so hot-headed and, you know, not in control of his emotions. Uh, 
Huh. Interesting. Interesting. So for for all of that, I mean, one of the reasons that you that you did this book was to try and help people better understand who he is. And one of the big points of the book is that if we actually understood better who he is, we might be able to deal with him better. So for all of that, what would you say is sort of the most common misconception about him? I think Vladimir Putin's formidable now. Um, and I, so I don't want anyone to think having, you know, my portrait of him chip away at that cartoon side that we should underestimate him. And anybody who's like expecting, and I'm, I'm looking at my, my Carnegie colleague here, that he's going to like sneak out of Ukraine with his tail between his legs and say, I'm really sorry. <laughs> you know, like they don't know who Vladimir Putin is. And he has been doing this now for 20 plus years. So in, with the exception of Joe Biden, he has more experience and more a long memory, like institutional knowledge of all the problems that have developed on his watch. And he's a hard worker. So he goes into every meeting well prepared and he doesn't wing it. And, you know, this was part of why when Donald Trump was president, Donald Trump and other Western leaders were really having circles run around them by Vladimir Putin because he just knows how to do this stuff a lot better and knows the backstory and has the sense of the weakness of our positions or the frailty of our arguments and our goals. And the problem, and this is part of bringing it back to the current moment, is that's fed a level of overconfidence. And the war in Ukraine is the you know, biggest example of how Putin has now overreached. And he was on a hell of a roll. If you go back almost 10 years to sort of the, when I think U.S.-Russia relationship really went off the rails, which was in 2013 when Edward Snowden showed up in Moscow. But things have been on a pretty steady downward uh, careening tra trajectory since then. Like, it was a good time for Vladimir Putin. He was, like, kicking America's butt, basically, on the world stage most of the time. The U.S. was very off-balance, very reactive. He was creating leverage. We weren't creating leverage. And we didn't really have the ability to sort of box him in. Now, with the war, that is the, the tables have turned. And, you know, the U.S. is applying huge pain on the Russians through our support for Ukraine, and Putin is having to kind of navigate a world where he can't do what he wants and can't get what he wants. Thank you. That's really interesting. Um, so I want to come back to um, the time that he served in Dresden in East Germany in the 1980s, which, as you noted, was really a, a backwater in the Eastern Bloc. And, and he was there as the East German regime unraveled when the wall came down in Berlin. How did that experience shape his view of democracy, free speech, and popular protest in his own country? There's a really interesting piece of the, of the book that focuses on the way in which his perceptions have been shaped. No, I'm, I'm really delighted, Carla, you bring this up. So there's a tendency, and I'm sorry to make critiques here, there's a tendency when Americans look at what's going on to think, surely we did something bad that made this guy so unhappy with us. We took advantage of the Soviet collapse. We expanded NATO. We called them mean things or wh whatever it is. Like we have a tendency to blame ourselves. And there's a lot of people who engage in that kind of uh, uh, backward-looking assessment. But what really scares Vladimir Putin and what really, other than staying in power, which I think is the big thing that guides him every day, is this fear that the U.S. goes around the world and instigates rebellions and creates people power protest movements um, and uses that as a secret sneaky tool that the CIA, working with U.S. NGOs and the tech sector, um, does the world over to get rid of governments we don't like. And since 1989, when Putin was in Dresden, at this key moment when the East German regime was unraveling, Putin has seen examples of this kind of spontane spontaneous uh, grassroots political stuff happening that leads to an authoritarian government being uh, run out of town by its citizens. And that scares him. And I think when we think about the crisis we're in, to bring up, you know, there's a whole string of these uprising starting in uh, Yugoslavia in 2000 and Serbia when Milosevic was overthrown, then in the post-Soviet space in Georgia and Kyrgyzstan and Ukraine famously in 2004, again in 2014 in Ukraine. And Putin is convinced that this is all the handiwork of the CIA and other uh, nefarious actors inside the U.S. government. 
But this is what he really believes. And what's fascinating, and I do go into this in detail in the book, is when you look at Putin's friends, and one of his friends is now the director of Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, this is how they tell the story of the October Revolution now, that the October Revolution was instigated from abroad. It was these activists who were sort of brought into Russia to lead a secret operation to overthrow the czar. And this is their basic like template for understanding pretty much everything. And it brings it back, just to bring it back to the war in Ukraine, that's the stakes in their mind, is that this war, depending on how it plays, will lead to their regime's downfall. And they will be either in jail or killed in the process. And so for them, the stakes are really, really high. This is all existential. And I don't think they're play acting about that. Yeah, but so I have to stop for a second here. And so, you know, we, we, we hear about Putin and the Russian regime sort of twisting the narrative and manipulating the Russian public's view about the war in Ukraine. And based on what you've just described and what you understand, how do we, how do we really understand how Russia can describe the U.S. and the West as fascist neo-Nazis that are sort of manipulating Ukraine? I mean, I think we look at this and just don't it – just, it just seems so – laughable yeah almost. it is laughable um it just to harken back to what we were talking about earlier about world war ii it is a very easy template that a low information russian average person if they hear will kind of go like yeah nazi bad therefore ukraine bad like it u.s bad trying to take advantage of russia um and you know there's a political side of this for putin which is all these things have one solution, which is the country should see itself as besieged by enemies, and I'm the guy to save you, so rally around me. So it's got a very self-serving endpoint. The Russian views of what's been happening in Ukraine since 2014 are not what they're saying in public, but they are based on the idea that the U.S. is now basically has license to do whatever it wants in Ukraine, that were the secret, you know, sauce in Ukraine's military success, which happens to be factually accurate, and that we're using the Ukrainians as our sock puppet. And it's basically an American government. It's us. It's our team, our proxies there. And that's what really bothers them. It's not that NATO's going to welcome Ukraine or the European Union's going to welcome Ukraine anytime soon as a full member. It's that the U.S. now has this playing field to do stuff that's destabilizing right on Russia's border and they need to snatch it back. And they need full control over how that country's ruled, its foreign policy, its domestic political situation. And they need to basically not have a real country there anymore, that it's too risky. And part of this is, and it comes back to the themes in the book, is just deeply encoded in how Russia's foreign policy ideas have been in place for centuries, that what really matters is the control of the land between Moscow and Berlin. And it just has to have as big a buffer between Moscow and Berlin as possible to create depth, strategic depth, so that Russia is protected and insulated from foreign threats. To prevent the next Nazi invasion? Or Napoleon or Nazi invasion or what have you. Fascinating. There are two different directions I can go here, and I think you've, you've kind of answered both of them, but... So you talk about Putin's character as a persona in the book. And and I wonder how much you think that perspective is skewed in the United States. And and I think another way of thinking about it is to what extent is the perception of him different depending on where you sit in the world. And I think the best way to think about this is if you were Russian, if you are Russian, do you perceive Putin's personality differently than people in the United States do if you were presented with the same set of, of facts? I was responding in part of why I wrote the book in the first place to the image of Putin that was circulating after Donald Trump's election of this great spy master and that everything that was going on in the world had Russian fingerprints on it. And so like the reason the U.S. was so politically polarized was a Russian plot. And it didn't really, you know, look in the mirror, frankly, at all the problems that we are ourselves the chief authors of. Russia exploits those, it amplifies them, it makes them worse. 
but they didn't come up with the Tea Party. You know, they didn't come up with the anger that a lot of average Americans feel toward our elites. They took advantage of that. They saw, you know, promising voices to discredit mainstream political parties, and they poured resources into Donald Trump. They poured resources into Jill Stein. I mean, they were very equal opportunity about, about that. We still don't, as a society, I think, really get that. And we have a kind of more simplistic assessment that, you know, at some point Donald Trump was turned into a Russian agent and then implemented the evil plans of his Russian handlers. And I mean, I have no idea what the actual truth is, but, but we've oversimplified things a great deal and taken our own responsibility out of the equation. And the Russian side, if you look at all this information, there has been, I think, a really systematic disenchantment to combine two words that you probably don't put together <laughs> with the U.S. over the course of the post-Soviet period. And the U.S. seemed in the 80s and the 90s like the antithesis of the Soviet system. So surely we were better, we were worth emulating. And there's been a lot of sour grapes. There's been a lot of sense that the U.S. isn't what we purport ourselves to be. We don't live up to the ideals or the values that we uh, propagate on the world stage. And it was very easy for Putin and his team to make us look worse than we actually are and to foster a sense of humiliation and grievance. And, you know, I think if you look back at the extent to which the Putin team deliberately now tries to make the period that you wrote your dissertation on in the 1990s and when I was serving the government as like Weimar, as if it was like the worst thing that ever happened to Russia. And admittedly, it was a very tough time and huge socioeconomic dislocation, huge political disruption. But they've fostered a sense that that was like Russia's low point and that what Russia really needs is to be orderly and it needs to have a strong hand and it needs to be feared and it needs toughness. So the ideas of representative democracy, rule of law, fairness, charity, kindness, all of that has been sort of pushed out as the, you know, the, 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 either the BS, like the U.S. doesn't have any of that stuff. It's all, you know, America is no different than Russia. It's corrupt. It's elites are bad. It's media are, you know, enthralled to the government. I mean, so they've really done whatever they can to try to slag us, make us seem worse than we actually are, um, and to try to discredit any alternative to what Russia currently has today. And it's so I think when you ask, like, how is Putin perceived by people in Russia, he's speaking to a very receptive audience. Like, people are not sitting around en masse in Russia saying, this is horrible. Like, we hate this. Like, there's about a 20% segment of the Russian public mm -hmm. who are like, we hate this. But the bulk of them are either apolitical, atomized, um, or just kind of really focused on day-to-day -day survival. And they don't have a lot of time for deep thoughts about how Russia should be ruled. Well, the value of the strongman leader has has a long history in Russia. And I mean, even in, in the 90s, I remember people complaining about the fact that there was trash because the trash wasn't being picked up and there were, there were products that were producing more trash and people would say, oh, well, under Stalin, we would have, streets are clean. And I just thought that was so odd <laughs> that people would... <laughs> be celebrating Stalin for that in 19, whatever year it was, somewhere in the mid-90s. I don't remember what year it was, probably 94, 96. But anyway, to, it was an odd moment. Um, so, but let, let's talk a little bit about, you know, Putin the empire builder, Putin the, the strong leader who is going to rebuild Russia's prestige in the world and, you know, rebuild the empire. And asked the basic question, which was, is he, is he wrong about Ukraine? Is, is the invasion a miscalculation on his part? Or, you know, is it, is it the ultimate, you know, goal and strength of him, for him as a leader? I think people in the Kremlin understand very little about contemporary Ukraine. They're getting plenty of reason now to bone up and learn more. Um, but they treated it as basically a, you know, a province of Russia and the way some Americans may think about Canada. Like they just had a level of, you know, we get this place. It's no different than us. 
its history is the same. They speak the same language as we do. And they really have blown it spectacularly. They blew it spectacularly in 2004 when they mucked around in a election that was uh, marred by vote rigging. And the people of Ukraine stood up and said, we won't put up for this, uh, put up with this. Um, and then they blew it again in 2014, and they thought there was a, you know, basically a U.S.-led effort to remove the previous government of Viktor Yanukovych. Um, and they thought that Ukrainians wouldn't stand up and fight. And we saw in 2014, average people put their lives on the line, send their kids to the war, fight themselves to defend their country. And they had no intention of becoming, you know, the 51st state, essentially, of, of Russia. Um, and the fact that Putin didn't get that after those two first black eyes says something about his being a low information person for all the hard worker image I portrayed. Like this is someone who fundamentally doesn't get it. And then during COVID, he marinated himself in even worse fake history about Russia and Ukraine's uh, shared history. And really came away persuaded by bad information that um, if you put a little pressure on this thing, it will crater. And it's basically being propped up by the United States. And then we have the unfortunate uh, example of what happened in Afghanistan, where a U.S.-funded, backed government crumbled basically overnight. And there was, I would say, like a pattern-matching mistake where he basically transposed what happened in Afghanistan and said, that's what's going to happen here. You, if I hit it really hard, it's going to shatter. There'll be no real Ukrainians left. And to the extent there are Ukrainians who don't like this, they'll be concentrated in the very, very far western corner of the country. And the rest of the country will just kind of welcome me back. And there's just incredible, I mean, it really is sort of shocking, but like some of the first wave of the Russian units who went into Ukraine didn't have their weapons loaded. They were preparing for celebratory parades, so they had like their dress uniforms, thinking that they were going to march down the streets of downtown Kiev for a big victory parade. So they completely didn't get it. And, you know, there's a whole generation of scholars like myself who didn't study Ukraine. So I don't want to pretend like I've you know, spent the last 30 years understanding every detail of Ukraine's history and what makes it different, but it is different. And people who live there have a very different history, a very different cultural identity. It's a mismatch and a mosaic. So I'm sure there are people who are very culturally similar to Russia, but huge numbers of people there have no lived experience in the Soviet period or think of themselves as Soviet citizens. And the fact that Putin is such an arrogant, violent person and couldn't even anticipate that he might have stirred up a hornet's nest or, you know, walked into a trap is, you know, I think just tells you something about who he is. And it tells you something to be worried about, which is that we don't know where this thing could go because Putin just has made massive miscalculations. And so the idea that we should assume he won't do that again, that he won't make more massive miscalculations on the back of this is, I think, false comfort. And, you know, we're assuming that given that he's only done this now by my count three times, like he's made spectacular, massive, horrible mistakes that cost people their lives and destroyed Russia as we knew it, like to think that it won't get worse. Like, to me, it just feels like we're, we're putting our own wishes over reality. Yeah, well, it's one of the one of the things I wanted to <clears throat> ask in just thinking about perceptions within Russia about about the course of the war and and the the, the losses the, on on the part of the Russian military and and the question really is how how much loss is is the Russian population willing to accept? Um, I mean, the numbers that I've the last numbers I heard, and I'm sure these are now completely outdated were that the losses for, of Russian soldiers was up 60 to 80,000. And in Afghanistan, the losses of the Soviet military over the course of the whole time they were in Afghanistan was like 15,000. And yeah. that alone was one of the nails in the coffin for the Soviet Union, was mothers challenging the Soviet regime over their sons dying or, or coming back grievously injured. So I just wonder what the tolerance is. Um, well, three quick 
points on that. One is, as I was saying earlier, the Russian people are depoliticized, risk-averse, and not likely to be the solution to our Putin problem. And if we're waiting for them to kind of storm the Bastille, we're going to be waiting a while. Um, two, there is an element, and I don't mean to stereotype people, but there is an element of the Russian character which gets at why Russians and Ukrainians are different, rooted in this idea of avos, which basically means like God will will it. And it's a kind of disempowering behavior that makes people feel they're not responsible for things around them or their circumstances. And it creates a sort of devil-may-care attitude about risk and about personal responsibility. And so that's permeating everyday life in Russia for the past you know, several centuries. And then lastly is the people who are fighting this war are coming from largely the most socioeconomically challenged parts of Russia, the places that have no running water, that don't have electricity, that don't have roads, and they don't live in the, moder- you know, the modernity of European Russia. Like, you go to Moscow and you walk down the streets of Moscow, it's a lovely, wealthy, modern European city. But that's not where most of these people come from. They come from a place where life is cheap, where life is hard, and no one feels they have a right to something else or are willing to take risks to demand it from their rulers. So I, I you know, I'm just, I, I can only see, unfortunately, a script where this thing goes on for a very long time mm-hmm. at this point and where there's more bloodshed and Russia continues to get more and more ground down by the Western support for Ukraine and the bravery of the Ukrainians themselves. But nothing really forces things to a head. And the last thing which I'll mention is there was a great paper by one of our colleagues at Carnegie about why the Russian it was called why the Russian regime holds its people in contempt. And there was this great moment in the beginning of the piece where Marshal Zhukov, the great Soviet general who helped win the victory in World War II, is having his soldiers walk across minefields to clear it. And an American general, I think it was General Marshall, is watching him do this and says, why are you having your soldiers clear the minefield, General? And Marshal Zhukov says, Women will give birth to more. Yeah. Okay, so we're depressing everybody a bit here um, with with my questions. Um, so I do want to remind you, if you have questions for Andrew, please feel free to jot them down, and I'd be happy to to interject and ask them go go down a different avenue. Um, I do. I you know do in while you're thinking about your questions, um, you know, I do want to come back to one of the, the, the themes that sort of permeates the book. And that's the extent to which, um, you know, Putin has a a level of bravado in his persona. And, um, as we have seen recently, there's been a lot of nuclear saber rattling. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just wonder um, if you might comment on the extent to which, you know, there's a concern that he may feel cornered. And, you know, is there, is there a point at which the nuclear threat becomes quite genuinely real? And how are, how are people thinking about that in Washington and elsewhere? So one of my favorite scenes in the book is the time when Putin was a, uh, elementary school age kid in his rundown apartment building. He's chasing rats around the hallway with a stick and he and his friends would play like, let's corner the rat and chase the rats around. And there's this funny moment in his childhood when he puts a rat in the corner and he's feeling very triumphant and the rat jumps on him and he learns this important lesson of like, don't corner a rat. And what's funny about that story upon reflection is it's, as a colleague pointed out, it's, it's ambiguous like, because Putin backed off when he was a little kid and learned not to, not to corner the rats. But now, our worry is like he really is cornered and he's capable of anything. And as I was saying earlier, if he really thinks that he's going to end up on trial or executed or in a ditch like Muammar Gaddafi, gunned down uh, by uh, opposing forces, like nuclear weapons are his way out. Right? They're the thing that he can threaten to use that will make the Ukrainians, the Americans, or others feel that, wow, like we're not willing to go there. Like It's not worth it to us. He cares more about this than we do. And that's been the way he has tried to foster hesitancy on our part. 
Like it's intentional that by using even the threat or alluding to the worry about the threat, that Putin is hoping that two things happen. One, that the U.S. will somehow magically pick up the phone and call the president of Ukraine and say, knock it off, like don't keep fighting. Um, that's obviously not going to happen. The Ukrainians are not going to you know, uh, pull back just because Joe Biden picks up the phone and calls them. And two, he's thinking that it'll make the U.S. really risk-averse and that we will scale back the support we provide to the Ukrainians. And that worry about escalation is real. And I think every day, and you see this in the, the press accounts, people in the U.S. are really worried. Like, if we do too much, if the Ukrainians act too audaciously, something really bad could happen. And it does turn, and I think this is unfortunate, it does turn U.S. policy on away from being really strategic about like what the whole goal of this war has to be. And it makes us more act like we're FedEx and we're in the situation where we're thinking like, okay, we can take certain kinds of weapons and give them to the Ukrainians. We can't give them these other things. And it really ties us up in knots thinking about, is it a weapon system that goes a hundred kilometers and not the one that goes 120. And it just really swallows the bandwidth of the senior most leadership team in the white house, where they really just get completely wrapped up in those issues, as opposed to the bigger meta strategic questions of like, how do we keep this thing from really getting off the rails? Well, I mean, he's even used troops on the ground and to put, to you to play that nuclear card, you know, with Chernobyl on the one hand and the threat that there might be um, radiation released from the Chernobyl um, plant and and the other nuclear plant and the electricity to that plant. So it, it is it is clearly a, a, you know, sort of a pressure point that he can push. The question is, is he really going to push it all the way? But the other interesting thing about what you just were describing is um, the question about negotiations. And, you know, the there's been some discussion about whether we should be negotiating. Is there any point in negotiating? And you were recently quoted as saying, we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that Russia has ever negotiated in good faith about Ukraine. And the Kremlin has rejected the idea of talks with Biden um, after the U.S. leader remarked he'd be willing to con- to have contact with Putin about it. But the recent decision to release uh, Brittany Griner in exchange for Victor Bout um, suggests that some negotiations are happening behind the scenes. But I don't know the extent to which negotiations over a prisoner swap um, is equivalent to negotiations over ending the, the war in Ukraine. So is diplomacy a ruse to misdirect, to delay, or is it a genuine possibility? I see the calls for negotiations as largely an expression of our own horror and fear. And we just want this to end. We would really like the killing to end. We would really like this thing to go away. And if my vision's correct, which I hope I'm wrong about, that this war will last five years, seven years, or one year, I mean, it's going to go on for a while. Um, it's understandable that people would prefer, you know, let's just get them all sitting and talking because that would be a better outcome. The problem with that is multifaceted. One is the things Vladimir Putin wants in Ukraine have not changed. He wants the country to disappear. He wants its leaders to be killed. He wants control over majority of the territory. That's what he's after. And there's no indication that that set of goals are gone or have been diminished as a result of the horrible performance of the Russian military on the battlefield. And the idea that we would force anybody who's facing a quasi-genocidal attack by a formidable invader to give that invader a timeout to regroup and rearm and replenish their... Uh, their capabilities looks to me unconscionable, given how vulnerable Ukraine is, given how much smaller it is than Russia, and given the fact that Vladimir Putin doesn't tell the truth. So anyone who wants to put pressure on the Ukrainians needs to look in the mirror and ask themselves, why would we trust Vladimir Putin? 
what's it about Vladimir Putin that now suddenly isn't about these big maximalist goals? And two, who's going to tell the Ukrainians that the, if Vladimir Putin doesn't live up to whatever uh, we are projecting onto him, the U.S. is willing to go to war to protect them and that we were willing to send our own men and women to go fight and die in Ukraine to make sure that Vladimir Putin doesn't get those things that I said a minute ago that he's willing to, to go to war over. Because I don't think any U.S. president at the moment, especially not Joe Biden, is willing to go to war over this. So if that's the case, if, if, we, if we aren't willing to back that up through a threat to go to war, then we need to be really careful about what we're asking the Ukrainians to do and not diminish the risks that they are all facing of literally being exterminated and wiped out in their bedrooms by by the Russian invaders. Okay, I have some questions that aren't mine here. Um, and there's a bunch of different avenues here. Well, let me ask this one because it was the one on top. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think I think you sort of tackled this in a, in a broad sense, but this is a specific a specific reference. Um, so, what if anything is happening with organized protests within Russia? We've heard there have been some waves of efforts to 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 re- and reactions, particularly the latest with the the call up the draft. Um, but this questioner is asking about, um, with Navalny imprisoned, are there other leaders of a protest movement that might emerge? So the Russian government has been ruthless and very creative in making sure that any sources of dissent are closely monitored, intimidated, or run out of town. And they have also been very creative about keeping the borders open and creating worry inside more liberal or progressive circles, that you could be next. And so the fact that people have fled Russia since the war started has been a really useful safety valve for the regime. Instead of creating one big jail, they've created a place where people are worried that something really bad could happen to them, and it's safer to just get out of town. And so people, several hundred thousand people have done that. So the most likely unhappy, most worldly, most well-educated segment of Russian society that doesn't like the existing political order has left. So that's just left by process of adverse selection, a much more docile, compliant population for the government to rule over. And then the really tragic and scary part of this is the government does a lot to do one or two really scary, horrible things, and then use that to create deliberate scares. And so the most horrible recent example of this was uh, a young man who read anti-war poetry during a protest and was then taken into custody with his girlfriend and was raped by the police. And the police then released his girlfriend so she could go out on TV and on the radio and tell people what had been done to her boyfriend. So everyone sees one or two examples like that and quickly realizes who they're dealing with and that they're not protected from something like that themselves. So I, you know, it comes back to what I was saying earlier, like if we are pinning our hopes on this all changing because magically the people of Russia will start behaving the way the people of Ukraine have behaved or the people of South Africa have behaved, like, we're really going to be waiting a long time. I, I hope I'm wrong. I really want to be wrong. Yeah, point taken. Um, so I'm going to lighten up this a little bit <laughs> and ask a couple yeah. of questions um, about the book. This, this, is a, this is a nice question. Well, maybe yes and no. I can, think I could answer it. Um, <laughs> there's a notable lack of Russian women in the book other than some relatives and prostitutes. Are there really no women in Putin's government? Um, there are a couple of prominent women around Putin who are his like, longtime associates. Um, the Speaker of the Parliament, who's kind of a yes-man person. There's the Deputy Prime Minister in charge of social protection and health, you know, health and human services, whose husband is a you know, like pharmaceuticals baron. So there aren't a lot of women in senior government roles, and there are very few women in roles as, like, captains of industry. Russia's one of the more patriarchal, sexist societies around. Um, and I think, you know, it is a, a country where even talking about gender equality and things marks you as someone who doesn't get it. 
because the, the gender norms and the sexism are so deeply entrenched. And there have been times when things like sexual harassment have been brought to the fore based on the horrible behavior of Russian politicians or other figures. And it's just, it never really has the same potency that it would have in a Western European or U.S. context. So speaking about, about Putin's government and, and um, who he's surrounded himself with, uh, this questioner is just asking if it's possible to identify sort of specifically people that are loyal to Putin, um, people that might be dangerous to him that are near. And we've already talked about those who might be opposed, like Navalny. Putin's current crowd around him are different than the people that helped run the country in the first 15 plus years. And during that time, a lot of those people were people who had served with him, who were his contemporaries in the KGB, people who, you know, he could sit and chat with, not necessarily as equals, but who had a level of familiarity with him and a lot of shared experience. The crowd now that is around him are either scared of him and intimidated because they know they're not very good at their job. So like the best example of this is the defense minister who was a construction foreman who just is like no great shakes as a defense planner or military leader and helps explain part of why the Russian military has performed so poorly. Or very young people who are there to basically take orders. And in a system like Russia where the, the authority is so concentrated at the very top of the pyramid – no one is going to get ahead by telling the boss it's a bad idea. And the war in Ukraine is probably the you know, most dramatic example of this, where Putin and a very small circle of people came up with this idea, didn't bother to tell the rest of the government what he was up to. So the rest of the government was caught off guard. And no, none of the planning was done with a level of rigor or scrutiny that might have prevented some of the, the bad assumptions that were baked in. And it's fortunate for Ukraine and for the West that the planning was so shoddy because if they had done their homework, they might have, you know, had a lot more success. So there are a couple of um, questions here, and this is this is something I haven't asked, and um, and that's um, about China's view of all of this. And so this questioner is just asking about what China's view of Putin is and how do they see um, the actions that he's taking and the impact it's having within Russia. Um, from their perspective. I'm looking at my my colleague here from the Carnegie Endowment, um, who's a scholar of Sino-Russian relations. Um, There's a lot of reasons why the Russia-China relationship has been on a roll, but it's been on a roll since the 1980s. And there were the warming trend that's in place dates back to the Gorbachev era. They used to be military rivals. They have a long land border And taking that friction out of the relationship allowed both countries to put their troops elsewhere, put their money elsewhere, and it unleashed, in China's case, a wave of prosperity as they did not have to worry about going to war with Russia, which they had worried about for decades. Um, There's natural reasons why China wants to buy natural resources that Russia has tons of. Um, and there's a natural wariness of the United States and both leaderships that you know, worries that the U.S. mucks around in countries' internal affairs, you know, has a, put pressure on their governments over human rights and other things, wants citizens to have access to the Internet, you name it, right? There's plenty they agree on. But in this particular case, I think the Chinese look at what Russia's doing and think, wow, Putin is disruptive. Putin is dangerous, but they are not going to step in and jeopardize the things that China has to prioritize, its own domestic stability, its uh, economic vitality, and do favors for the United States and kind of come to the rescue and solve this problem for us. And the best we can hope for, I think, is what the Biden administration has accomplished, which is we don't want the Chinese in the war. We don't want them providing advanced military technology to Russia. We don't want them blowing up the sanctions regime. And because the U.S. has these uh, blunt instruments like sanctions in place, most Chinese commercial players do not want the U.S. to paint a bullseye on their back and rip them out of the global economy. Because the Russian market is so small and negligible, 
you don't want to take that kind of risk on and lose out on access to the U.S. or European market. So I think the most we can hope for is where the Sino-Russia relationship continues along the trajectory it's on, but the Chinese stay very selfish, very focused on their own needs. Over time, the fact that China is so vastly richer, more prosperous, more advanced technologically, more influential globally than Russia, and the fact that Russia is headed in the exact opposite direction is just going to cause a lot of pain to the people in the Kremlin. And they're just going to see over time that whatever the Chinese do to make them feel important, they're shrewd, self-interested, and they don't do charity. Fascinating. So I think you've I think you've really answered this, but I I want to come back to it because I think it's really important um, to to make this point. Um, I think it's probably the biggest um, miscalculation on the part of the U.S. and and the West that we underestimated how Putin would perceive Ukraine entering NATO or even entering the EU. So this questioner, this is actually an online question, um, is asking, how threatening to Russia is Ukraine's membership potential in NATO? Um, I love getting this question because it allows me to voice upon you my rhetorical question, which is how many U.S. tanks were in Europe when the war in Ukraine started in 2014? I don't know. Zero. I would have guessed a small number. Yeah. So (laughs) the idea that NATO was this like military machine that was revved up, focused on Russia, threatening to the Kremlin was something that was very convenient to the Kremlin throughout this period because it was a way of creating a boogeyman. It was a way of justifying huge defense expenditures and as a way, as I said earlier, to communicate to the Russian people, we're surrounded. There are these bad guys at the gate. We're a besieged fortress. We must all be unified around Putin or you know, we'll be brought back to the, the horrible 1990s and we'll be on our knees and people will tear Russia apart. So it was a very convenient boogeyman. The problem of NATO enlargement is something that the Republican George W. Bush administration in- basically in its waning days in power, overreached and tried at a time when George W. Bush was very unpopular to reach out to a couple of friendly governments that were at that point still nice to the U.S. that weren't furious over the war in Iraq. And it was like a politically empty gesture where they thought we can bring Georgia, this other country and the South Caucasus plus Ukraine into NATO and it'll be a crowning achievement of Bush's otherwise very blemished record as president. And the German and French governments at the time saw what George W. Bush was contemplating and said, over our dead bodies, and stymied it. And it was, uh, it, was, it was basically killed in the cradle by our own European allies. And I think the Bush administration the, at the time was, was doing things that were provocative needlessly that they couldn't deliver on, and that were not ripe. But what it did was it created a fear in the back of the Russian minds and the Kremlin that like someday this actually might happen. And that's what NATO formally pledged in 2008, that eventually at some point in the future, Ukraine and Georgia will be in NATO. And they made this kind of very vague, vague statement committing the NATO alliance to do that at some indeterminate point in the future. And I think the likelihood of that day ever arriving was really, really, really vanishingly small until February 24th. And now, by virtue of having gone to war in Ukraine, destroyed the normalcy that prevailed in Europe after 1989 when the Cold War ended, by turning Russia into this really scary threat again, and by making Ukraine worried of a genocidal future onslaught if the current one doesn't succeed, the West is going to have to do something for Ukraine. And there will have to be some form of new security arrangement that makes Ukraine militarily capable of defending itself, that makes the Russians accountable for all the horrible things they've done there, and ties the U.S., because we're really the backbone of NATO, to some form of security relationship with the Ukrainians. It maybe won't look like NATO membership. It'll look maybe something like what we have with other countries we're really closely connected to who are not necessarily our treaty allies. 
But again, Putin has brought about his worst nightmare, where he has reanimated NATO, he's given a, a lease on life, he's made people pour huge amounts of money into rearming, and he's made Russia less secure. So it's just, it's like the biggest, most spectacular own goal of any Russian leader in history. Well, and Finland... And Finland and Sweden join NATO, right? I mean, it's, it's insane. He did the impossible. Yeah. He has done the impossible. It is kind of miraculous, really, yeah. when you think about it. Yeah. Well, so, so I want to bring – we have just a few minutes left, and I want to bring this back to sort of U.S.-Russia relations for a moment and uh, speculate a little bit about 2024. Um, noting, Putin will win. <laughs> noting, <laughs> noting that there will be presidential elections in this country as well as in Russia. And, and of course, here it, it is going to be a fairly consequential election, we would yeah. expect. Um, but we don't expect the same in Russia. Um, and in fact, it's a, a sore point for me um, to see that the Russian constitution has been amended so that there are no longer any restrictions um, on President Putin from having another term or having a term in perpetuity. Um, but I wonder if you might speculate a little bit um, about whether or not um, at the outcome in Ukraine matters to Putin and whether or not 2024 is a point at which some, something decisive needs to have occurred. I think it, 2024 is the event. And right now, Putin is playing for time. He wants to outlast the Ukrainians. He wants to outlast their Western partners. He wants to do whatever he can to build leverage and pressure on both the West and Ukraine. That's why he's destroying Ukraine as quickly as he can, with you know, particularly hitting vulnerable things like the electrical system, the drinking water of the country. He wants to make Ukraine unlivable and expensive and broken and hopes that that bill, as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, will scare Western taxpayers and put them in hot water, with, uh, put their leaders in hot water. And the biggest thing he can hope for in the meantime is that some American president will swoop in and replace Joe Biden and put us on a different trajectory. And the single best person to do that is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's, you know, that is the stakes, I think, for us. You see every night on Fox News uh, people beating the drum about why Ukraine is a bad country and why it's, you know, it's, a, it's a sinkhole for, for our wealth and our power and why the Ukrainians aren't really good and Russia is really our friend. So the, you know, we talk about propaganda being bad and we talk about people being brainwashed, but that's how part of our electorate gets their news every day. And it's very potent. Because um, if you say it enough times, people will believe it. Well, on that depressing note, <laughs> <laughs> we are actually out of time. And I must apologize for not getting to all of your questions. Um, Andrew will be here so you can ask anything that I did not get to. Um, but I do want to thank you, Andrew um, Weiss, James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and author of The Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin for joining us today. And thank you, our audience, for watching and being here tonight. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. 